hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, language, people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Chapter 21 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Does God understand restless feelings? When you saw the title, you might perhaps have thought that this was a rather unusual subject. It does not relate in any obvious way uh, to any biblical text of which you might be aware. So let me just uh, begin by explaining where it comes from. It actually comes from the lyrics of a, a rock band that uh, 15, perhaps 20 years ago was singing around university bars and various clubs in Scotland. You might wonder how I obtained this information. Well, I had two teenage sons at the time. And uh, on a journey to France, from Berwick-on-Tweed on one occasion I've often told this story um, we had to do a deal concerning 
the music that would be played across those many hundreds of miles. And I found myself listening to this band. Uh, they were known as the Lost Soul Band. They were not Christians, and most of their lyrics were not related to Christianity or to God in any sense. But the fact that they gave themselves that name speaks for itself. And here is this song in the middle of the tape which expresses anguish and pain and searching and longing. Has God changed with the times? Does he understand restless feelings? Does he understand mine? Does he know half the world doesn't pray anymore? because they don't quite know what to say anymore. It was a revelation to me. made me realize that my cultural snobbery was actually isolating me from very serious and important questions that were being asked at the level of popular culture to which ultimately the gospel has the answer. And that even in a society that appears to be so profoundly secular where for many people the very memory of God seems to have faded, there are those who are still crying out and asking what we might call the God question. It was a cry in the dark. It was asking for some response from a God who seemed to that generation not to be quite there anymore. Now, the truth is that this is a very familiar theme in our culture and you can find it in all kinds of ways there are expressions of this pain and uncertainty and anguish all around us only this week as I was praying about this service this morning I purchased my newspaper and I found the headline today's youth anxious depressed antisocial and here the newspaper devotes four pages to an analysis of a report that indicates that there's a, an alarming increase of the incidence of anxiety and depression among young people. And over the last couple of decades, there is evidence that it has increased by 70%. And perhaps even more alarmingly, it is gradually working its way down the age range, so that at an earlier age, you find young people who are struggling for all sorts of reasons, with anxiety and with depression. So restless feelings are all around us. In one sense we might say that restless feelings are what defines people in contemporary Western culture. And of course it's not just those who are outside. It's not just those who have lost the story, who have restless, restless feelings may well be that there are folk here in this congregation this morning who for all kinds of reasons identify immediately with this question. You have your own reason to be restless. You have your own reasons to be asking questions of a God who seems sometimes to act in ways that appear to put it at its mildest to be very puzzling. I want to suggest to you that here in this extraordinary book of Revelation we find precisely such restless feelings. Chapter 5 and verse 4 I wept and wept 
because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Whatever that means, John of Patmos, who sees these visions and records them in the book, is clearly restless. Here is an emotional and a spiritual and, if you like, an intellectual restlessness. He weeps and the language suggests that he actually weeps uncontrollably. This is not just shedding a few passing tears. I wept and wept. He's overwhelmed with grief. And the text indicates that there's a real bitterness in this weeping. When I was uh, in my early 20s, late teens of early 20s, I worked for five years in the city of London. I used to catch the underground train, the Bakerloo line from Watford every morning, make my way into the city and emerge into the light of day at the bank station at the very heart of the city. And I would come up the steps of the station and be there in time to go into the church of St. Mary Woolnow on the very corner of the central junction of the city in order to spend some time in quiet before the day's work. And on one occasion, I went into the church building, suddenly became aware that near me, sitting near me in one of the pews, was a man much older than I was, whose body was convulsed, shaking uncontrollably. I didn't know what the problem was, except that um, as I sat there and prayed, I realized that he was weeping. I had never seen a grown man cry in that way. In fact, I'd never seen a grown man cry quite like that since. And it was a shattering experience for me. I had not realized that there could be grief of that kind. I, I wanted to reach out to the man, and yet I felt completely unable to do so because the, the experience was affecting me in such a profound way. That's the description that we have here. We have a Christian who is weeping and weeping because of the crisis that he is experiencing in this vision. Why is it that there is such overwhelming grief and tragedy and pain and anguish and uncertainty expressed in this text? Well, in the context of the vision, you remember that it relates to a scroll which is sealed with seven seals and it cannot be opened. His attention has been drawn to this scroll which is at a crucial point in the book, in the previous chapter. He's had a, a wonderfully uplifting experience where he has seen the glory of God and he's heard the praise of the whole of creation and now suddenly he's plunged back into crisis because this scroll, which is crucial to the rest of the book, simply cannot be opened. Its contents remain unknown because no one, he is told, has been found who is worthy to open the scroll. Now, it's not my purpose this morning to try to expound this vision or indeed the book in any detail. That's a very difficult task. What I simply want to suggest is this, that the reason for the tears is that the scroll 
unfolds the meaning of human history. Now we know that because we know that eventually the scroll is opened and it leads on to the visions that follow. And as we understand those visions, what we're given is an answer to the enigmas of human existence. An answer, if you like, to those fundamental questions that human beings since the very dawn of time have found themselves asking, what, what does it mean? Where have we come from? And why? Why are we here? What, why, why all this ambiguity and confusion in human life? What is, is there any possibility that there is some ultimate transcending purpose that can make sense of a world that seems to be broken and shattered and so often to be full of tears. And it's as though John of Patmos knows that that scroll is crucial to the answering of the question. And if the scroll remains closed, if there is no one worthy to break the seals, then the questions will be unanswered. And we are left living in a world in which we find the questions keep arising, but we simply have no way of supplying an answer. The world remains chaotic and confused. And we feel that, don't we? We may be Christians, we may have been on the Christian way for many, many years. But if we're human beings at all, there are times when we also feel the acuteness of these questions. Why should children be taken hostage? Why should children suffer terrible death and be brutally killed? These, these questions can't be avoided. The only way of avoiding them is to suppress them, to pretend that they're not really there. And, and John, it seems to me, helps us because in this vision he, he feels this restlessness of spirit. He weeps and weeps as long as that scroll remains closed. If no one is worthy to break the seals, if nobody can unfold the meaning of it all, the ultimate meaning, then we are left in the world that is described in the famous lines of William Shakespeare. History is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And I think part of the reason for the distress of young people, the reason for the increase of depression and anxiety at ever younger ages is because we are a society without a story. We don't know how to open the scroll. We don't know how these seals can be broken. We are left with this nihilistic Shakespearean view of the world and of human history tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing and I want to suggest that though we know the end of the story there are nonetheless times when as Christians we also feel the pressure of these kinds of questions many of you here will be familiar with the name of Helen Rosevere. You remember Helen Rosevere's books that were immensely popular 10, 20 years ago and are still in print today. 
And as a young, brilliant young graduate, she offered herself and her skills to missionary service in Africa. And she wrote a book at the beginning of her missionary career with the title, Give Me This Mountain. Cry of the judge in the Old Testament, Give Me This Mountain. I want a challenge. I want to do something for God. I want to achieve something that will build and extend the kingdom. She went to Africa with that tremendous enthusiasm and commitment and desire to do something for the glory of God. And then came the second book. A number of years later, you remember the title, He Gave Us a Valley. Give me this mountain, but the experience in Africa was more like a deep, dark valley. And I want to suggest that one of the things that we need to do today as Christians is simply to be honest. It seems to me that one of the things that turns many people away from the Christian faith is that Christians often appear not to be people who struggle and have difficulty. Of course it's not true. But so much of our language covers over our struggles. And in a world that is hurting as badly as our world is hurting, we must be honest. And if we struggle, and if we are restless, and if we have problems, well, they're there in the Bible. They do not have to be suppressed and ignored. They're at the heart of Scripture, embedded in this last book of the Bible, is a weeping saint who cannot control his tears. I mentioned earlier that I was in Rotterdam just a week ago. I spent a whole week in the centre of Rotterdam, the largest port in Europe, probably in the world, uh, with a group of students looking at urban ministry in that city context. There were aspects of that experience that were completely overwhelming for me. Going out late at night to the area where the prostitutes and the drug addicts operate. Visiting a diaconal centre in the middle of Rotterdam where people whose lives are just a tissue of tragedy are received and cared for. And I was left with questions. All sorts of questions that arise when you engage in that kind of ministry. So it is not a departure from faith to admit that we have restless feelings. There are times even for those who know Christ to be the Lord of history when it seems as though the horizons of hope are covered by the dark clouds that come from our pain and our agony and our suffering. But thank God that is not the end. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And you have this extraordinary mixture of images. He's told that there's a lion, but when he looks, he sees a lamb. A lamb looking as if it had been slain. We haven't time to explore this in any detail, 
but the one who is worthy is the slain lamb. This has tremendous significance in the context of John's world. What is the world he's living in? Well, it's the world of power politics. It's a world that is dominated by the strength and the glory of the Roman Empire. And he's at the heart of that. Most uh, commentators on the book believe that he's a prisoner of the Roman Empire on the Isle of Patmos. And it's been suggested that Patmos was a Roman penal colony. So you see his situation. He confesses that Jesus is Lord. But in practice, it looks very much as though Caesar calls all the shots. And now he sees the lamb, the slain lamb. And the voice from heaven says, look, John, get, get things in perspective. Understand the truth from the perspective of the throne of heaven. Forget Rome, forget its glory and majesty. Forget that invincible army that terrifies the whole world and keeps it in subjection. That's what is regarded as normal from the perspective of this world. But go through the door into heaven and you discover a different reality. And you find that the only one who is worthy is not the Caesar, not the armies, not those who wield power and think that gives them ultimate authority. It is rather the one who came and suffered even unto the death of the cross, who alone is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll. And the chapter then goes on to exalt Christ, who alone is worthy. Verse 9, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And again in verse 12, in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And there's an absolute contrast here between the power and the glory of the Caesar and the glory of Christ who achieves his worthiness by obeying the Father even unto death on the cross. I have at home um, in a collection of CDs a piece of music by an Austrian composer who's not well known here um, by the name of Franz Schmidt and uh, in 1938 he composed a wonderful piece called The Book of the Seven Seals. It's a setting of this passage from the Bible, the translation of Martin Luther of this particular vision in the Book of Revelation. And it's the most wonderful musical setting of these words. In Austria, in 1938, in other words, just as the Nazis were about to march into his country, this extraordinary piece of music is premiered. And as the jackboots are heading toward Austria, so Austrians hear this countercultural message. Not Adolf Hitler, not military power and might, not ideology, but Jesus is to be honoured and worshipped and adored. Christ alone makes sense of the mess of this world. 
in Jesus alone we find one who is worthy amid all our suffering and our brokenness to break the seals and to open the scroll and to fill us with hope that there is a transcendent meaning which ultimately will make sense of all our pain and all our loss and all our agony. And of course that's how the story ends and very, very briefly just look back with me to that final passage that we read earlier in the worship. Chapter 21. By the time we reach this chapter everything is beginning to change. It's a chapter that is full of the phrase no more. So what you get happening here is God saying I'm going to take that out I'm going to take that out. I'm going to take that out. I will make everything new. There is no more sea. It used to trouble me when I was a young Christian. Uh, I grew up in the London area. I was always grateful when my parents took me to Southend on sea to get some sea air. So why does the sea disappear? Don't we like to be beside the seaside? Well, of course we do. But in the Bible, the sea means something else. You travel largely by sea and it's always a place of danger. You never know whether you will come back. It's a main source of death and therefore of grief and loss. In that sense, there will be no more sea. There is no more temple. John looks around in this new city and expects to see the same kind of church buildings with which he's becoming familiar within his own tradition. And he's told no more temple. Why? Because no longer will there be any distinction between secular and sacred. Everything becomes sacred. There's a unity. There's a bringing together. Everything is done in the presence of God and for the glory of God. And this ought to make us think about how we are church in the 21st century. How important are institutions and meetings and even buildings? If we're heading for a city in which there is no temple, then at the very least, here and now, we ought to be striving to bring together the whole of life under the authority of Jesus Christ. And most of all, of course, verse 4, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. It is impossible to imagine a more wonderful picture of the intimacy of the fellowship of God with people than we have in these last chapters in the final book of the Bible. God himself will be with them and will wipe every tear from their eyes. You don't let anybody wipe away your tears. That's something that belongs within an intimate relationship. And here, God, the Creator, the Lord of history, shown to us in Jesus Christ, comes so close that He Himself will wipe away every tear. I want to end with a poem and as I read it you might like to make it your own prayer 
at the end of this morning. The words are on the screen. All the fears I need to name but I'm too scared to say. All the shame for what I've done which nothing can allay. All the people I've let down and lost along the way. All the hate I still remand. Must these torment me to the end of time? Who is there to understand? All the wasted years in which I struggled to be free, all the broken promises that took their toll on me, all the love I should have shown and all I failed to be, all I longed to take my hand, must these torment me to the end of time? Who is there to understand? What the cause of pain is and much more the reason why What my final hour will bring, how suddenly I'll die. What the future holds for those I'll miss, for whom I cry. What too late I might demand. Shall these torment me to the end of time? Who is there to understand? And here is God's reply. All the wrong you now admit, I promise to forgive. All that you regret, you are not sentenced to relive. All the love you've never known is mine alone to give. You, my child, are understood. So do not fear all that is yet to be. Heaven is close and God is good. We close by singing.